This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 19th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Where individual cops aren't held accountable for their misconduct, it can wreak havoc on local government budgets when cities are forced to pay out. Patrick Tui of the Better Cities Project details how cities can reassert their power over police misconduct. A lot of police reforms that have been offered by the feds um, as stalled out, uh, the ones that are sort of most important as policy priorities from uh, the perspective of the Cato Institute, qualified immunity, of course, has been a big sticking point. A couple of states now have gotten rid of it, and I believe New York City has also uh, gotten rid of it, at least for police. But what role can localities play in making sure that they're not left holding the bag when there is widespread police misconduct or police misconduct is just very costly? So certainly police, uh, uh, police put public officials at the local level on the front lines of this. They are the, the first to suffer, whether it's uh, unrest or, like you say, lawsuits. Uh, and they have the greatest interest in policing their police and making sure that public servants uh, behave themselves. Yet oftentimes we see city leadership waiting for states or the federal government to act as if they cannot themselves. And whether it is qualified immunity, uh, civil asset forfeiture, uh, federal tax for, uh, task forces, uh, cities absolutely can solve these problems for themselves. So let's take those in turn. Let's start with task forces. Uh, a lot of people don't really understand the degree to which accountability can be undermined absolutely. when uh, local police are literally deputized feds. So I live in Kansas City, and a few years ago, the federal government came in with Operation Legend, and they were going to offer local Kansas City police an awful lot of resources. The program was named for a a four-year-old, who I believe, was shot. And understandably, Kansas Cityans welcomed this because it meant resources, it meant attention, and we were hopeful that it would mean results. But the reality of it, of course, is that when, as you say, uh, local police sheriffs are deputized by uh, joining federal task forces, they are less under the purview of local authorities. So it used to be for years that uh, local police didn't have to wear body cameras when they were uh, members of federal task forces. That has changed. But certainly the rules for use of force are different. And once again, it's the locality that is the first to feel the sting when something goes wrong, right? So Atlanta and a few other cities have actually dropped out of federal task forces because what local police did under the protection of uh, federal power was inexcusable. And so our Better Cities Project advice to cities is to not join task forces in the first place until you can get guarantees that those task forces will respect Uh, local practices on body cameras, on use of force, on transparency, on accountability, because you risk losing all of that. It's quite a kick in the pants for local officials to suddenly realize that somebody who uh, they're writing biweekly checks to uh, is suddenly not under their direction. Absolutely. And, And it's you know, the James King uh, example, and you've had the, the attorney on uh, before to discuss this, where, you know, a uh, innocent man was uh, put in a chokehold by a local authority who was a member of a federal task force and there is no accountability. It is really frustrating. And if nothing else, it can become a 
public relations black eye to local officials who have to deal with this for years um, and, and don't necessarily have the benefit of um, uh, of the resources to defend themselves. They're just stuck with a bad cop that they can't do anything about. In the case of civil forfeiture, I don't know that I'm aware of cities that have abandoned that practice. So certainly, uh, like you said, uh, some states, uh, New Mexico, Maine, Nebraska, I believe, have gotten rid of it altogether. Alabama has put caps on the amounts that they will allow authorities to take. Um, I believe that Hennepin County in Minneapolis, which is uh, which is the county that Minneapolis sits in, has informally introduced caps, but uh, getting them to return my calls and talk to me about how actually that that looks uh, is another matter altogether. But certainly, local authorities at the city and county level can institute practices that say we will not take, say, cash um, uh, under $1,000. We will not seize vehicles valued at under $5,000. And and again, if, if police want to make the point that these uh, laws are there to seize the the property of drug kingpins, then then let them do that. But what you and I both know is that the value of things taken civilly is so small that it's not drug kingpins. It's it's uh, uh, people with uh, small amounts, uh, possession of small amounts, or, or maybe nothing at all. And of course, the, the bigger complaint about civil asset forfeiture is that these items are taken from people who are never convicted or even charged with a crime. And by the way, uh, 2000. 22 is the bicentennial of civil asset forfeiture. It was 1822 when the Spanish uh, ship was seized by the, I think it was the Grumpus. And the Supreme Court said, you know, this ship was engaged in piracy. So the forfeiture, even though we haven't accused anybody or convicted anybody of a crime, we're keeping all the goods. And again, it is in 200 years later, we talk about it as if we're seizing the goods of drug, drug kingpins that, that we can't reach across political borders to get. But the reality is, is we're, we're taking it from small businesses. We're taking it from individuals. Yeah. And uh, to the extent that those are very small amounts of money being taken from low income people, uh, it's really hard to avoid the public relations conclusion that this is just cops shaking people down. Because they're allowed to keep locally, they're allowed to keep uh, the proceeds. And so they will even say, hey, if you stop this practice, it will affect not only will crime go up, but it'll affect our budget. And, uh, and studies in, in uh, uh, Pennsylvania have shown that that's not the case. When New Mexico got rid of the program, they haven't seen an increase in crime. And to your point, we know from studies by the Institute for Justice and the Southern Poverty Law Center that uh, the people often affected most by civil asset forfeitures tend to be minorities, tend to be poor. And the amount of money you need to hire a lawyer to protect your assets is often worse uh, worth more than the police have taken in the first place. So it is it is a shakedown that targets the people least able to defend themselves. And it reminds me of all the reports that came out of Ferguson uh, in Missouri after the riots there, because we found out that the local court system was using fee and fine system to prey on the poor. The feds have a role here as well, which is to say, even in states where civil forfeiture has been abandoned as a matter of statute, the feds can still uh, find ways That's right. around that to deliver a sizable chunk of uh, proceeds from seizures to local police 
in the state legislature or city council doesn't have a thing to say about it. Which is exactly why localities need to adopt this themselves on the front lines, because as you say, uh, police can seize it, send it to the feds, and the feds will share proceeds uh, back with the lo- localities. And, and and I think anybody listening understands that when law enforcement or or any local authority has a financial interest in acting a certain way, they will act in a certain way. And so, again, when you allow police to benefit financially from preying on uh, uh, people who can't defend themselves, you get more of that. And it's not a matter of uh, accusing people of uh, being evil, right, or, or preying on the poor. It's a matter of you're setting up an incentive. You're, you're giving them a financial incentive to behave a certain way, and so they're more likely to behave in a certain way. In the case of qualified immunity, uh, of course, New Mexico's done away with it. Um, uh, Colorado has broadly done away with it. Um, with respect to uh, individual officers who are accused of misconduct, and maybe they have been charged criminally or have not been charged criminally, um, what is the best course of action for a local city council to say, we're not going to allow you to, what, assert this defense? So New York City okay. uh, has done exactly that. And it has said, you know, it applies to police officers, not necessarily correction officers or parole officers, but it says, you know, y- you as an individual have recourse. You may sue if you believe your constitutional rights have been violated. And the best part was that the head of the uh, the, uh, the the police union perhaps sent out a letter to the police officer saying, hey, everybody, uh, the law has changed. You need to make sure that you are absolutely uh, regarding people's constitutional rights, which is, of course, an outcome we would want all police to have. Um, but again, if police feel protected from infringing on your constitutional rights, you're creating an incentive, even for the best police officer out there, you're creating an incentive for them to maybe cut corners. And again, localities need to, uh, for their own sake, uh, for their own public relations sake, to make sure that their police are held accountable, just like we want every public servant to be held accountable. And so it's it's an opportunity for cities to avoid the nightmare of a of a bad cop who behaves horribly, and then the city finds that it cannot punish that officer. Yeah, in the cases of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, uh, their families got many millions of dollars. That's absolutely right. And that came out of the city treasury. That's right. And so it's anticipating what can we do to disincentivize bad police officers or to make sure that should the worst uh, situation happen, that we can act in a way that looks responsible to our population. If we find out after the fact that there's nothing we can do, uh, you're absolutely right, the the financial cost, but even the, the public relations cost and the sense of community. And it's in the interest of police themselves to make sure that their members are held accountable because if they don't operate with the goodwill of the community, um, then they can't do their job. I don't know how how this plays out in a lot of communities, but my sense is that, uh, at least politically, there ought to be a strong public case that you could make for, we are doing this in the interest of showing you, the residents of this community, as much respect as possible. Absolutely. And good policing requires that. Good police officers, good chiefs of police, good sheriffs want to demonstrate to the community that we care about you. We live among you. We want the best for everyone. And being able to hold their old members accountable, being transparent, uh, demonstrating that we are all on the same side. We are all the good guys here. 
uh, is is very important. Unfortunately, we have stumbled over the years, over the decades, into piecemeal illegal cases or legislation that have perhaps demonstrated that the police aren't on the same side. And it is bearing ugly fruit all over the country. Patrick Tui's policy director at the Better Cities Project. We spoke last month in Las Vegas. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>